Good evening. Please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention this evening is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Tonight we are continuing our four-part series on the doctrine of the church. As we've previously noted, the Nicene Creed, an ancient creed of the church, summarizes the doctrine of the church by listing four attributes of the church. The first, as we've already seen, is the church is, whole, is united. The church is one. We saw last week that the church is holy. Tonight we'll discuss the church, that it is Catholic, and next week we'll discuss that the church is apostolic and what that means. But tonight, what does it mean that the church is Catholic, that the creed confesses? And the sermon will be slightly different than normal. I'll be spending a little more time discussing doctrine and even some church history before closing with some practical applications. So hang with me. If you hear a little bit of historical analysis, it is relevant, I promise. When the Nicene Creed confesses that the church is Catholic, a lot of people get uncomfortable, people in our circles at least. They assume that, that the creed is saying something having to do with the Roman Catholic Church. However, the Catholicity of the church is a doctrine that was in place well before the Roman Catholic Church that we know ever existed. The term Catholic comes directly from a Greek word, katholikos, which simply means universal or pertaining to the whole of something. So when we say that the church is Catholic or universal, we're speaking about the entirety of the body of Christ, all of Christendom, all believers around the world both today and even across time. The communion of the saints, we might say. Our confession speaks to the Catholicity of the church in the first paragraph of the article on the church. It says, the Catholic, that is, universal church, consists of the full number of the elect who have been, who are, or who will be gathered under Christ as her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so to say that the church is Catholic is to speak of all the saints, to speak of the aspects of the faith that are necessarily present when the body of Christ is found. And so tonight we'll examine how Catholicity is taught in the New Testament, how it's been variously understood in church history, how it's been wrongly understood, even today how it is wrongly understood. And we'll close by seeing how this understanding of the church helps to bolster the unity of the church. As counterintuitive as it may seem, the church's Catholicity actually fosters increased unity. But let's begin. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, but we'll spend our time on verse 5. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Hear the word of our God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. 
our Father in heaven, who is Lord of all, who is over all, who is through all, who is in all. Father, we, we're thankful for your word. We thank you for Christ, whose work is the reason that the church can be united, that the church can be holy, that the church can be universal. That we are united with our brothers and sisters both around the world today and throughout time. All those who profess you to be Lord are indeed our brothers and sisters in the faith. But we pray that you would help us to see your word, to love you more because of it, and to love each other well in light of it. In Christ's name, amen. Our verse tonight is brief. Uh, It's a simple assertion. And it begins with the body of Christ as having one Lord, and it says one faith and one baptism. And those three um, points, those will serve as our three points for tonight. In our first point, we'll note the foundation of the church's Catholicity. The foundation of the church's Catholicity, and that is our Lord, our one Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ is the sole foundation of any understanding of the church's Catholicity. And it seems almost unnecessary to say that to be part of the Christian faith, to be part of the Christian church, to be a part of the universal church, you must have Jesus as Lord. And yet, it must be said. And it must be said because there are people throughout the history of the church and people today who would not ground Catholicity explicitly and exclusively in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They would want to ground Catholicity in something else. We see, for example, very early attempts in the history of the church to ground Catholicity in someone. One church father named Ignatius of Antioch wrote a series of letters around 100 A.D., so very early in the history of the church. And he made a statement in one of his letters that says, wherever the bishop or the overseer or the pastor, wherever he appears, there let the congregation be. Just as wherever Christ is, there is the Catholic church. Now, depending on where you put the emphasis in that sentence, you could either be grounding Catholicity in the presence of Christ, or you can be grounding it in the presence of the bishop, the overseer. And that became a common tactic in the early church in the battle against heresy. And that same tendency of grounding Catholicity in the presence of the bishop is still around today. So, for example, The Roman Catholic Church grounds Catholicity in the institution of the Roman Church, particularly with the Bishop of Rome as its head. That is, the Roman Catholic Church views itself as the earthly body of Christ, and the Pope in Rome is the earthly head of that body. He is explicitly viewed as the earthly representative of Jesus Christ, the vicar of Christ himself, and thus he is the head of the earthly body of Christ. Therefore, they argue, if you are not in communion with the Roman Catholic Church under the authority and ministry of the Pope, you are outside of the body of Christ and thus outside of the Catholicity of the Church. And so for them, the Catholicity of the Church is grounded in an institution and in a person, the Pope and his cardinals. And thus they believe that salvation is found in their particular institution under their ministry. And that, we should note, is a very un-Catholic position. It actually undermines the universality of the church of Jesus Christ. But other denominations and other churches ground Catholicity in something else as well. Some ground it in apostolic succession, meaning that they they think they can trace 
their church's lineage all the way back to the time of the apostles. Others ground it in the universality of some sort of experience. Maybe they ground it in a particular kind of baptism or a particular experience of grace. Some might say that you must have a certain religious experience. Like if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you're clearly not in the universal church of Christ. Or if you haven't done something miraculous. And whatever they're doing, they are mistakenly replacing the lordship of Jesus Christ as the sole foundation of the church's Catholicity. To be a part of the universal church is to come under the saving lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So all that is needed is simple faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and you are entered into the communion, the true communion of saints. You are part of the universal church, the Catholic church. It doesn't take a special service. It doesn't take specific acts of devotion. It doesn't even take baptism. The lordship of Jesus Christ is the foundation, and faith in him is the key to submitting under his lordship. Just like the thief on the cross who was saved right before his moment of death, so too can anyone alive today still submit to Christ as Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you speak English or Chinese or Hindi or Arabic. If you hear of Jesus Christ and submit to Him as Lord, you too can be part of the universal body of Christ. And so the simple question for us to begin with tonight is, do you have Christ as your Lord? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of your soul? And to have Christ as Lord means that you submit to Him as the only ruler of your life. He has exclusive claims over you. He is the only means of salvation. And you, He is the only one that you love as Savior. It means that you're willing to submit to His leadership. Submit to His estimation of what is right and wrong. And submit to His calling on your life. Do you have Him as Lord? And we must note that it is not possible to have Christ as Lord over part of your life. You can't have Jesus over, as Lord over your soul, but not have Him Lord over your body. You can't have Jesus as Lord over your Sundays, but not Lord over your weekdays. There's no part-time submission to Jesus' Lordship. He's either Lord over all of you or Lord over none of you. And so I pray that you will hear the message of Jesus Christ tonight and submit to Him as Lord. He was the faithful Son of God who came in the flesh, and He succeeded in all of the ways that man fails. And he bore the punishment that all of failed mankind had earned. He, he died in the place of a terrible sinner. And he was raised on the third day, which is a promise of life for all those who would submit to his lordship and would become a part of his body through faith. Trust in that Lord and that Lord of Jesus Christ and you will be made part of the universal church, the body of Christ which is united across space and time solely because of their shared union with Jesus as their Lord. Jesus and His Lordship is the only foundation of the church's Catholicity. Second, Paul says in Ephesians 4 5 that the church has one Lord but also one faith. And here is our second point. It is in the faith that we see the evidence of the church's Catholicity. The evidence of the church's Catholicity. Let's frame this point by asking a question. We may all concede the first point being true, that 
faith in Christ is necessary to determine who is in the universal church. But the harder question to ask is, how do we know if a particular local church is part of the universal church? To answer that question, theologians have helpfully summarized the New Testament into various marks that characterize what a true church is. So, our Nicene Creed, for example, summarized them as the church is united, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. In the Reformation, the marks were clarified more precisely into two general areas. For a church to be considered a true church, they said that it must have two things. It must have the biblical gospel, and it must have the right administration of the sacraments. The true preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments. And so churches in possession of those two things may be more or less pure, but they are indeed true churches. And churches that lack the clear gospel and wrongly administrate the sacraments may be considered false churches. No matter how true individual Christians may be in them, the church itself would be false. And so let's press into that a little bit. First, the true preaching of the gospel. And this is the heart of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. A recovery of the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Largely based on his studies of Romans and Galatians, a monk named Martin Luther sparked a big movement to bring reformation to the church. A restoration of the church to the true New Testament understanding of who Jesus was and what he has done in the gospel. And the Protestants began to see the truth of the New Testament, which is grounded on justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners. And in light of that, the Reformers began to start churches in which they could rightly proclaim the true gospel. They came to the conviction that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong on the issue of justification, among other things, and therefore they had lost the heart of the gospel itself. Rome had injected human works into the doctrine of justification and had thereby undone the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ's work alone. And even more sad was the fact that when that Roman church was faced with this truth, the Roman church doubled down on its position. At the Council of Trent, they officially codified the Roman position on justification and a host of other doctrines, and they went so far as to anathematize which means condemned to hell anyone who teaches or believes in justification by faith alone, which is what Paul taught in Romans chapter 4. You can still read these statements in the documentation from the Council of Trent. Rome has never rescinded those pronouncements. And so this is where the Protestant tradition started, protesting the Roman view of the gospel. And even today, we must exercise a measure of discernment when we judge the legitimacy of local churches and the purity of the gospel they proclaim. So, for example, when we receive into membership new members, we pastors have to investigate the credibility, not only the credibility of the person's personal testimony, but we also have to know what kind of church they're coming from. Are they coming from a church that's preaching a true gospel, or are they coming from a false church? It's not always as easy as it seems. Many people claim faith under the lordship of Jesus Christ, but in fact preach a false gospel. Mormons do not preach the gospel of the New Testament, and so their churches are false churches. Jehovah's Witnesses are the same way. 
The same with oneness Pentecostals. They deny the Trinity and thereby undo the biblical good news. And sadly, even the Roman Catholic Church, which has not changed its position on justification since the Council of Trent, but in fact has driven itself further away from the purity of the gospel message, and is thereby showing that it is a false church preaching a false gospel. There are, there are good Christian people who are still in the Roman Catholic Church, but the church itself, as demonstrated by its official statements of doctra, dogma from Rome, shows that it has lost the gospel and thereby removed itself from the church universal. And so that's right. You've heard it here first. The Pope isn't Catholic, not in the New Testament sense of the doctrine. A church must proclaim the biblical gospel in order for it to be a true church. But the second mark that the Reformers clarified is the right administration of the sacraments. And this dovetails with the first point about the true gospel. Contrary to the Roman church's claim of seven sacraments, Protestants only saw two in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the language that they used about the sacraments is important too. They specified, quote, the right administration of those sacraments. And this has two senses. First, the sacraments are wrongly administered when they're done in a way that undercuts or undermines the gospel message, which was the first true mark of a church. That means that partaking of the sacraments should complement and not undermine the message of the gospel. So, for example... When the Roman Catholic Church proclaimed at the Council of Trent that, quote, the instrumental cause of our justification is the sacrament of baptism, end quote, they had granted to baptism powers that belong only to the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. And they had undercut the gospel message. You can look it up online. It's the sixth session of the Council of Trent, chapter 7. They removed from the recipient the necessity of genuine saving faith, and made the waters of baptism the instrumental means of our salvation. And therefore they, therefore they had officially codified their position as wrongly administrating the sacrament of baptism. And something similar could be said about the, their view of Lord's Supper at the Council of Trent. But the problem doesn't stop, and it didn't stop back in the 1500s. There are even Protestant churches today that fail to rightly administrate the sacraments. For example, some of the classical Church of Christ churches confuse the gospel of grace with our own works when they rigorously assert that faith alone cannot save a man. He must be baptized as well. Some Pentecostals do this. They'll say that faith alone will not save you. You have to speak in tongues or you have to heal somebody to truly demonstrate that you're a member of the church. And these are clear examples of our works being injected into the gospel. And the church is not rightly administering the gospel and the sacraments. But to rightly administer the sacraments not only means that the local church's official teaching should be proper, it also means that the sacraments should be rightly administered in terms of their use among the body. That is, the reformers also assumed an understanding of church discipline as necessary for the health of a true church. The reformers could not imagine a church proclaiming faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, having a proper understanding of the place of the sacraments in a believer's life, but then allowing a person in clear, rebellious, unrepentant sin to retain access to the sacraments. It doesn't make any sense. And part of the gospel 
is that we are saved from the power of sin and we are increasingly saved from the presence of sin in our lives, which means we continue to grow in holiness. And for a church or a person to tolerate clear, unrepentant sin and act as if everything is fine, well, that's evidence that that church doesn't understand the gospel message that it is proclaiming. And so, to bring us back to our verse in Ephesians, the church has one Lord and one faith, and that faith is the gospel, which is a message that has particular content. It has a core to it. It, It's not infinitely malleable to take the gospel and stretch it to mean anything and everything. And that gospel is to be expressed in two particular pictures, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And for the universal church to have a proper expression in a local assembly of believers, that is a local church, then that local church must possess and proclaim the true gospel and the true sacraments. In sum, the universality of the church expresses itself locally through faithfulness to Christ's message. And that message has certain sacraments that were prescribed by our Lord. And when we get outside of that message and outside of the proper view of those sacraments, we get outside of the church universal and run into false local churches. Now, it's not always easy to discern which churches have drifted too far. Some churches, like the church we've been studying in the letter to the Corinthians, have a true gospel and yet have terrible problems, have terrible problems with ugly sin. But where we find clear confessional teaching of a church that is contrary to the explicit teaching of Scripture, then we can be sure that that church is no longer Catholic in its doctrine. The faith of the gospel message is the evidence of the church's Catholicity. Third, moving on to our final point, I want us to see the fruit of the church's Catholicity. The fruit of the church's Catholicity. Paul says in our verse that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That one baptism is significant for the universal nature of the church and for the unity of the church throughout all space and time. The baptism that we receive is not the baptism of Morning View Baptist Church. It's not the baptism of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not the baptism of North American Baptists. Not a baptism for white people or for black people. It's not a baptism for the educated or a baptism for the simple. Not a baptism for men or for women or for even Reformed or even Protestants. It's the baptism that we receive because of the triune God that we serve. It's a baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that Christian faith, that communion that is represented by that baptism is Catholic. It is universal. That's part of what Paul's getting at when he says things like Galatians 3.28. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that in Christ there are no longer distinctions, as if we all become some sort of androgynous amalgamation. Rather, he's saying that all are equal as Christians by virtue of the fact that they are baptized into Christ Jesus. They are all Abraham's children. Let there be, therefore, no prejudice. No bigotry in the church of Christ. No rejection of others because of their skin color, their language, their nationality, their customs. These things make no difference at all, Paul says. Further, the idea that one language is better suited to express the Christian faith than another. Or that some races do not make very good Christians. 
Well, statements like that deny the Catholicity of the church. That kind of flawed prejudice has occasionally popped up throughout church history, particularly here in the South, and it is contrary to the Catholicity of the Christian faith. So is the notion that one country or one people represent in some special sense the kingdom of God. Some old classic forms of dispensationalism teach that. And today the black Hebrew Israelites teach that. But the Catholicity of the church does not only mean that people are saved from every nation and gathered into the church. It also means that God gathers His church throughout all the ages. The Catholicity of the church therefore assumes that we shall be with Abraham and in Isaac and Jacob in God's heavenly kingdom. Matthew 8, 11. It also allows for believers now to be referred to in Revelation 6, 11 as fellow servants and brothers with the martyrs. Lastly, and to get practical with this doctrine, the Catholicity of the church means that all kinds of people belong to the church. The church is for the poor and the church is for the rich, for the great and the small, for the young and the old, for the master and the slave, for male and female. The church has room for them all. That's part of what James is getting at in his letter when he blames Christians for favoring the rich man while despising the poor man in their midst. To act in a prejudicial manner is to practically deny the Catholicity of the church, which is pictured in baptism. The church is for all kinds of people, regardless of what they look like or where they came from or what their job is or how much sin they have. And to act otherwise is to undermine one of the beautiful attributes of the body of Christ. Additionally, the doctrine of the Catholicity of Jesus' church helps us very practically because it reorients our perspective in the Great Commission. We're examining global missions. It's our emphasis this month. And the Catholicity of the church impacts our view of missions. It's very easy to isolate ourselves and to turn our little brand of Christianity into the totality of Christendom. It's easy to wrongly believe that if people don't do church like us, they don't preach like us, they don't think like us, and talk like us, and, dra and, and uh, dress like us, then they must not be saved. But the doctrine of the church's Catholicity saves us from such self-deception. Morning view does not equal the pinnacle of Christianity. Neither does any single church. There's no single congregation and no single denomination that is the sum of Christ's bride. That means that we can have great charity with brothers and sisters in other churches. And we can have great patience with churches that appear to be less pure. Further, it also means that as we pursue faithfulness to the Great Commission, we don't have to try and replicate morning view around the world. That's not our goal. I always laugh when I go into other countries, countries that have their own unique architectural style, and then you look and you see a cathedral built in the European Gothic style that sticks out like a sore thumb. It's as if to be a faithful Christian, you have to fit into a particular cultural mold. But the gospel is larger than that. It is a message. It's not a social or cultural rehabilitation program. And the gospel can go into every country, in every language, and every foreign culture, and it will transform them all. The Catholicity of the church is not limited by borders of nations nor bounds of customs. That's because the Holy Spirit is not limited by such things. The church 
is universal because the Holy Spirit's ministry is universal in scope. And that means that anyone can be a part of Christ's bride. We serve one Lord in one faith, and we have one baptism. And one of the beautiful fruits of the church's Catholicity is that the baptismal pool is open to anyone. It's open to the poor and the despised. It's open to the master and the servant, to men and to women. And all that's required for entry into Christ's church is to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord. If you do that, you too can be part of Christ's bride. And so come, come to Christ, confess Him as Lord, repent of your sins, receive the faith of the Bible, and you too can be baptized a member of Christ's Catholic Church. And if you do that, you too will be able to join us at Christ's table for the Lord's Supper. And that's where we get to end our time together tonight. The Lord's Supper is another beautiful picture of the Catholicity of the church. The church of the faithful has been proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death through the Lord's Supper since the time of the apostles. Every Lord's Day around the world, millions of believers partake of the same special meal, reflecting again upon the work of Christ and the union that we have both with Him and with each other. If you have Jesus as your Lord, if you're a member of Christ's church, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you're like the saints mentioned in Acts chapter 2 who were devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, then this table is open for you. But if you have not yet submitted to Christ's lordship, or if you're out of fellowship with a local church, then we urge you to let these plates pass. Be reconciled to Christ and His church before you partake, lest you eat and drink judgment upon yourself, as Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of grace found in Christ and his faithful work alone. We pray, Lord, that you would work within us, that you would help us to believe, that you would help us to be holy, that you would help us to be one, and help us to love you more because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, take these elements and set them apart and use them to build up your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.